Hey there, welcome to the third episode of the third season of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and functional fitness advocate. And I'm Liv, a retired beauty queen working on a biochemistry PhD. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. On today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Parag Malik, a Stanford professor and biotechnology startup founder, to learn about how his company is revolutionizing how we can study proteins. From the lab to the clinic, the Nautilus technology uses the combined power of many science fields to drive discovery. At the end of our interview, we'll also uncover the other tricks up Dr. Malik's sleeve. Let's get after it. Dr. Parag Malik is founder and chief scientist of Nautilus Biotechnology, an associate professor at Stanford University, and an interdisciplinary scientist who has developed multi-scale approaches to accelerate the discovery of diagnostic and prognostic protein biomarkers. Parag trained with pioneering researcher Rudy Abersold in clinical proteomics and systems biology at the Institute for Systems Biology. Parag holds a BS degree in computer science from Washington University in St. Louis and a PhD in chemistry and biochemistry from UCLA. He has over 75 publications and holds patents in the fields of artificial intelligence, proteomics technology, biomarker development, and nanotechnology. Dr. Malik, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So that is a pretty impressive bio, which obviously begs the question, you know, how did you get to where you are today? If you could kind of walk us through your journey in science, your journey through your own education, and then now as a founder of a biotech company, how did that all happen, and and why is it that that's what you do today? That's a that's a great question. I think we could start all the way back in high school. You know, I've lived at this intersection between computer science and biochemistry, literally my whole life. And whether it was through really careful planning or indecision, I'll leave that up to you to uh, to decide. But uh, you know, going back, I had an really amazing molecular biology teacher in high school and a really amazing computer science teacher uh, as well. And so I got to college and I, I knew that I enjoyed both of those things a lot. And at the time it wasn't clear how you would combine them or if there was a way to combine them, but I just, I knew I liked both of them. And so I rooted around and at one point in time, I talked to my Dean and different advisors. And it's like, I really want to do these two things. And I'm like, well, but biochemistry is in the school of arts and sciences and computer sciences in the School of Engineering. So we haven't had people do that before, but we're willing, if you're willing to do it, we're willing to support you. And so that was a really amazing opportunity that, that WashU was able to provide. It came along with seven different advisors. I had, I had research advisors, I had biochemistry advisors, I had computer science advisors. I had an English advisor uh, who came in because I did an intro seminar in ethics. And so, so amongst all of this collection of advisors, they helped me forge this path to bring these two areas together. And, uh, and when I was going to graduate school, I, I sort of continued with that. And that turned into the rest of my, my career was to think about how can we take advantage of the mindsets and approaches and thought processes from engineering and bring them together with life sciences in rigorous ways? And I'd say that that perspective has been the foundation of everything I've done my whole whole life and going on through graduate school and my postdoc with Rudy and then starting my own lab first in Los Angeles and then uh, and then most recently at Stanford. It was really about 
trying to use these diverse perspectives, bring them together. It's really cool to me that you had that mindset at the time that you were going through your training, because I'm sitting here now as a second year student and the only regret I have from undergrad and truly the only, only regret I have in terms of my own education is not having taken more computer science courses. Because as I'm sure you know, everything that you do in a lab at some point touches a computer. Even if it's just the data going through some sort of, you know, Excel spreadsheet, at the bare minimum, you need to know how to do that. And to be honest, now doing work in a genetics lab, I'm doing much more than just Excel spreadsheets working with genomics data. And I would have saved myself so many headaches, so much time on this end of the, of the journey if I just kind of thought ahead and thought about how the two worlds really are kind of combining. And I think every field now is seeing more and more of even just kind of basic computer science, if not, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning. So you've made that combination. You're kind of putting those things together. How does that play into what Nautilus does? Yeah, very. I think just to follow up on, on your point, I think where we see the greatest innovation historically has always been at the intersections between things. We have a lot of forces when we're training that encourage us to go really deep and to specialize and be true experts in, in one thing. And those, those forces are important so that we don't end up topical, so that we actually have substance and depth. On the other hand, they risk not having the diversity and breadth that can allow us to bring really disparate concepts together. And I think what I've seen is that there are tremendous opportunities when you draw an inspiration from ecology and bring it into the study of cancer, when you draw techniques and principles from electrical engineering and use them to study where biomarkers come from, that these intersections often open you up to entirely new ways of doing things. And that's, that's very much what happened with Nautilus, is that it came from a point of depth that I've very much been in the field of proteomics and driving advancing technologies for many years, but at the same time been very frustrated with the tools that we have. When we do genomic studies, so you mentioned you're in doing, doing genetics, uh, we have really amazing measurement tools. Right. Anybody who wants to can go out and sequence whatever they want, and it's really easy and convenient. And my academic lab has done so much work in multiomics. And so we would go and we'd do genome, we'd do transcriptome, and then we'd go do proteome. And the disparity in how difficult those methods are and how accessible those methods are has just been at the top of my mind for years driving this extreme frustration. Now, it's not totally clear that one should start a company because you're irritated, um, <laughs> but uh, that is where Nautilus came from, is trying to look at what tools we had to put proteomics into parity with genomics and not really seeing great pathways to do that with our existing approaches. And then waking up one day with a crackpot idea that came from merging lots of different disciplines together and saying, wow, there's, there's a path to do this. There's a path to measure the whole proteome in one experiment. And once you see something like that, it's an imperative to do everything you can to get it out in the world where it can do some good. 
ironically, and this was actually completely unplanned, our last episode was about metabolomics. So a slightly different omics. And we've been saying the word omics quite a bit. You know, why is the proteome actually important? What is proteomics? What can we stand to actually learn from that information? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a key question. Uh, I think particularly coming from the lens of we've done so much genetics and we've talked a lot about the human genome and what we can learn from it. Um, the way that I think about it is that your genome is, is foundational. It is the blueprint for what might possibly be. So, you know, if you think about your house, the genome is the blueprint for that house. On the other hand, it has to go through these layers of regulation of what gets transcribed into RNA, and then ultimately what gets translated and modified into proteins. And so going back to that house analogy, if the DNA is the blueprint, the proteins are the beams and the nails and the live view of your house complete with your kids drawing on the walls and, uh, you know, somebody springing a, a, a leak. And so all of that detail and color that makes your house an actual house, a living object, and represents what's happening at this moment. And all of the events that led up to this moment, those are captured in the proteome. Your genome's pretty static over the course of your lifetime. Your proteome is changing literally every second of every day. And so it can inform, you know, the fact that you, you had a bad diet for 10 years, or you had inflammation from an injury, all of those aspects that describe our physiology and breakdowns in our physiology are captured in our proteins. And so proteomics is the study and mass of all of our proteins and how they change over time. And unfortunately, it's a substantially hard problem measuring them. The tools that we have today, you know, again, you take a drop of blood and you just ask what proteins are there and how much measure about 8% of them, eight single digit, 8% in contrast to your genome where you get, you know, 99.999% of it. And so that was really the foundation where Nautilus started was the proteome is the driver of all your physiology. It's the thing that makes cells go towards disease processes. It's it's representative of disease processes, and it's just the center of our physiologic universe. Uh, it would sure be swell to have ways to measure it. So what is the technology that, that Nautilus leverages to be able to bump those single digits up to double digits, 50%, 75, 99.9? <laughs> yeah. So there, there were a couple key aha moments in, in the realization. The first came from recognizing the proteins span a really wide range of concentrations. So that there might be, if you look across a cell, you might have some proteins like transcription factors that are present in literally one to five copies per cell. And then you've got other things like your cytoskeletal proteins, which are present in millions of, of copies per cell. Uh, and so that, if you want to be able to measure something extremely, extremely sensitively down to that one molecule in a bazillion, that implies that you need a technique that is looking at single molecules. So that was the first foundational part of the platform was to say, okay, well, everything we have out there today, most mass spec techniques, ELISAs, arrays, et cetera, those are typically looking at proteins in bulk, looking at millions or billions of molecules at a time. 
And so it's very hard for them to get sufficiently sensitive to find that one copy of something. So that was moment number one was, all right, we need a way to measure single protein molecules. Okay, well, how does one do that? Uh, the, <laughs> it's, not, it's not straightforward. Um, and so what that required was changing the way that we measure proteins at all. So the way we normally do it uh, in techniques like ELISA is we put a whole bunch of an antibody down on a surface. And then, you know, you flow your sample by and it grabs a protein of interest out of that sample. And then you maybe come in and sandwich it to detect it. And we do all of that for sensitivity. In the Nautilus platform, we quite literally take that paradigm and we flip it upside down. So instead of putting affinity reagents on the surface, we instead take our sample and we spread it out on the surface and glue it down. So if you picture in your head this giant chessboard where each cell of that chessboard holds exactly one protein molecule. Now, this is not straightforward to do. It requires a lot of nanofabrication. It requires some pretty complicated nanotechnology. It's hard, but... It sounds so simple, right? <laughs> yeah, just put the proteins down. So you've got one at every cell in the chessboard. <laughs> no problem, easy to do. Um, but once you've done that, it fundamentally changes the nature of the problem. Because once you're at that single molecule level, identifying protein molecules and quantifying how much is there become quite literally the same problem. So whereas normally you're getting your abundance information from how bright something is or how big the signal is, in a single molecule assay, if I can just figure out the identity of each protein on each little cell of the chessboard, I get my quantification by just counting my identifications. So identification is quantitation. And that's something that's really special that only happens at the single molecule level. But of course, then you're stuck with this question of, all right, all right, how do I figure out what each molecule is? They're just randomly splayed all over this massive surface. Uh, and that was really where the second key insight came from. And it, uh, so, you know, we've already taken, you know, hardware and biochemistry and put them together to build this surface. The second piece is where you start bringing in the computer science. So the way that people would typically identify things is again, by using these very specific antibodies that recognize exactly one protein. And so you could do that, right? You've got your proteins glued down. You could flow in an antibody that recognizes some important protein like EGFR and say, here are all the EGFRs or here are all the PSAs. But to do that over all the proteins of which there are you know, tens of thousands, that would be pretty slow and it would require affinity reagents against every single protein, which we don't have. So that's where the second key insight came in, which is, well, we're always complaining that these affinity reagents don't just recognize one protein. They recognize lots of proteins. Well, let's take that concept to extremes and say, okay, well, let's build a special class of affinity reagents that we call multi-affinity probes that intentionally recognize not one or two or three, but thousands of proteins. So this is an unusual class of, of molecules, but if you think about it, really what you're doing is you're turning your affinity reagents into question answering devices. And so, you know, you can flow one in, it'll recognize some proteins on the array, wipe it off, come in with a second one, it'll recognize another multiplicity. And while each affinity reagent, each probe 
isn't very specific to any particular protein, the pattern of them starts to be really, really specific. You can think of it almost like if you, are, you were trying to figure out amongst a room of people who everybody was, you could go around and you could ask, oh, are you Drew? Are you Bob? Are you? And it would take you a long time to ask each one of those people who they were and ask all the questions of possible names. Or you could go and you could say, oh, okay, well, are you male? Do you have blonde hair? Do you have brown hair? Do you have blue eyes? Did you go to Northwestern? And even though each of those questions is really blurry and lots of people will raise their hand and say yes, if you get enough of them chained together, you can figure out really precisely, really quickly that this person over here is Drew and that person over there is Liv. And that's the intuition underneath the platform is instead of trying to ask one perfect question, ask a large number of slightly general questions and then chain it together with machine learning to figure it out. That's really cool. And what, so I, I don't have a great, very in-depth knowledge of this work, the way you do and the way Liv has a background of omics, if you will, but that drew on a, a very early childhood memory of the game. I think it was called Guess Who, where oh, yeah. you would have, you couldn't see what the person was and you have to ask all these questions. Like, is it, is it a boy? Is it a girl? Are they wearing glasses? Do they have brown hair? And you flip the tiles yeah, you flip the tiles down. So it's like, uh, guess who for adults, for, <laughs> for, for scientists. It is totally, it is guess who on steroids, uh, using machine learning to help you interpret, uh, all of the questions that you're asking. Absolutely. So that's, that's really the, the heart of the platform. It's, it's not really, you know, when you hear it like that, it's not really that complicated. The instantiation of it, you know, is a little complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so, you know, you've combined computer science and you've combined biochemistry and, you know, you're looking at proteins and proteomics, but then there's also so much engineering that had to go into this, right? To create that actual platform that you're putting these proteins on. I don't think I have the chemistry background to know how that worked, but then also to create those probes, that must have been a whole, you know, what was that process like? Has that been multiple years? Was that months? You know? Yeah. Well, so, you know, the whole process, we've been at it for five years now, yeah, um, wow. building every piece of this process. And like you said, what's so special about the company is you walk around and you say, oh, material scientist, surface chemist, optical engineer, biochemist, nucleic acid chemist, um, you know, computer scientist, data scientist, and they're all talking to each other and sharing ideas and working closely together. And that's just so special to have so many different types of people working so closely together to solve one problem. And that's for me been incredibly gratifying and, uh, and something that's just really special about the company is that we have all these truly amazing scientists and engineers. And part of what makes them amazing is that they are you know, deep technical experts Part of what makes them amazing is that they are thrilled to be working across so many domains. And, you know, that can be really nerve wracking. You're an expert in X and, you know, you, you're the world expert in chip fabrication. And yet this is your first time really diving deeply into these elements of biochemistry. And so that's a really special person who has both that depth of knowledge, but also the humility and the excitement about interdisciplinary collaboration. Yeah. And like you said, that that's where a lot of the progress is made, where, where fields collide, if you will. That being said, in your intro uh, we had for you, we, we mentioned the diagnostic and prognostic 
potential for this technology. Can you kind of elaborate on where you might see this going in the medical field from either diagnostic or prognostic point of view and where it might make the greatest impact or the quickest impact, like where it's going to be seen first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when we think about where this is going to be applied first, we, we definitely think about research applications first, um, that it's going to, if you think about the process of how do we develop a drug, that starts with finding a target, finding something that's different, uh, a protein that is different between your disease tissue and your rest of your body, frankly. And so that's a really great application for this is is being able to very precisely and sensitively say, oh, you know, that protein, that's only on the cell surface of those, uh, you know, cardiac cells that are uh, in this disease state and doesn't exist throughout the rest of your body. Those are your dream targets that are truly differentiating. There's this concept of therapeutic window, which is essentially the difference between how much of a protein is present in healthy versus disease. And that's part of why things like heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's are so difficult is because there are own, there are own human proteins, our own human cells gone wrong. And so being able to really precisely understand that, uh, that target discovery element, we think is a huge, huge area. And then downstream of that are what are called mechanism of action studies. And that's, you know, you take a, take a drug, you, you hit a protein, it has this cascading network of effects that again can lead to toxicity or some people it'll work in and others don't. Um, so that's another really great application area is just understanding what these potential therapeutics might be. And then, you know, getting to diagnostics, of course, we're really interested in things like diagnosing disease, detecting disease earlier, um, finding those proteins that are shed from cancer cells into the blood and uh, being able to do that as early as possible. Um, so those are, those are applications that we're really excited about as, as low hanging fruit for the platform. So actually, as you're talking about this, when you kind of mentioned the research aspect of it, it kind of got my gears churning. There's so many ways that this would be so useful. And if it became kind of a common technology in the lab space, how helpful that would be. I mean, I've never done a full proteomics mass spec experiment and for anyone listening that doesn't know what mass spec is and consider yourself lucky if you don't, you know, you're taking a, a ton of protein, splitting it up into tiny little pieces into essentially fragments of little molecules and spitting it onto a detector. And then you piece back together that information to find out what is present in that original sample. But from what I understand from a purely experimental perspective, it's a very complicated, pretty long process. It's a lot of information. And you also lose a lot of information, kind of what you mentioned earlier, with those really, really low abundance proteins, they kind of get masked by the presence of so many other higher, um, higher prevalence pro proteins. So when you can kind of skip past that, you can really look at these sort of nitty gritty details of what's going on in a cell. And that's so difficult to study on the protein level. So it's exciting to me that this could be something like what we consider to be a pretty standard technology in the lab one day, you know, the same way we do something as simple as, I don't know, a PCR or a qPCR and just something that's in, you know, you order your Nautilus kit and it comes in and you do your study and that's your work day. So that's kind of cool. That is absolutely the goal is that, um, you know, if you look at proteomics today, it's mostly in the hands of expert users. It is, so it is difficult. Uh, and 
Whereas again, genomics, anybody with pretty basic molecular biology skills can order the Kyogen kit and send something out for, for sequencing. That's our goal. Our goal is to make proteomics ubiquitous so that anybody who, I mean, we have this, we have a saying inside the company that I get teased about all the time, uh, which is anybody who wants a proteome gets a proteome. Uh, <laughs> it's really about making it so that any lab scientist anywhere is able to get a comprehensive proteomic profile. So to kind of put you on the hot seat here, you know, there are a lot of pieces of information that you're missing when you do a genomic study, right? Because it kind of is that blueprint. You don't really know what the outcome of that blueprint necessarily is. So what sort of pieces of information might be missing when you look at the proteome? What sort of downfalls does that have? Yeah, well, so I, I guess what I would say is I personally, as a multi-omic systems biologist, believe that there is information in all of the different lens scales. And so genome, transcriptome, epigenome, proteome, metabolome, glycome, <laughs> uh, surfaceome, pick your ohm. Uh, and so all of those things are, are really important. And ultimately, we want as holistic a view as we can get. We, we do happen to believe that proteins are a key part of that and that, you know, you're never going to be able to predict how much of protein is on the cell surface to be a great drug target from looking at DNA. It's just, it's the wrong lens scale. And so absolutely, the more we can measure, the more granular, the faster timescales, right? Proteins turn over really quickly. Those will give us a more complete view of how our body, how cells are regulated and dysregulated. So I, I think it's a great opportunity. You mentioned metabolomics. We're not going to be answering that question, right? So there are going to be things about glucose transport that we'll be able to comment on the enzymes that are there and are they active potentially and how much is there and how does it change over time? But we'll need additional technologies to help fill in the blanks of the rest of the system. And so I think that's just a tribute to how beautiful and complicated biology is that it can't be summarized by any one measurement. Yeah, and maybe that's where the next Nautilus comes in. The, yeah. the, the Nautilus for metabolomics. <laughs> yes, absolutely. yes, absolutely. So I think that, I think there, I think these are all important pieces of the, of the puzzle and, uh, but you can't even, you can't even begin getting there if you can't measure things. Absolutely. And as someone who's gotten really lucky with kind of where my PhD has taken me in the first year and some change, kind of having a little bit exposure to each of these omics, you really can't paint the full picture without some part of each one coming together. It all ties back together. It's almost like the interdisciplinary nature of science from the broad perspective, from the human perspective, it's down to the same same sort of logic when you look at the cells itself themselves. It's not just genetics. It's not just proteins. It's, it's all of it kind of working together to tell you what's going on. So that's kind of cool. And before we wrap up, we wanted to ask you about something that was told to us about you. So... You're a scientist, a pretty, I would say, successful scientist, but you're also a magician. Can you tell us how that happened? What drew your interest to magic and how do you kind of keep that in your life today? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's so funny. This is something I literally never used to talk about to either uh, my science community or to my circus magic community. Um, but I've been involved in both for 
much of my life. I, you know, when I was a kid, I used to dork around with magic, nothing serious. In college, I got much more serious about juggling, um, was part of and in starting a, a juggling club at my my school called Students Against Gravity. Um, <laughs> and we would do little shows. We weren't very successful at fighting gravity, but we did our best. Um, and then uh, it was really in graduate school that I was living in Los Angeles, going to UCLA. And there's this very special place there called the Magic Castle, which is kind of like going to Hogwarts. It is a magician's guild. In order to get in, you have to be either a magician or invited by a magician. It's a really special, unique place. And so I just I decided that I wanted to start taking lessons and get a little more serious about it. And so, you know, juggling was sort of the slippery slope and then magic came next. And then once from there, you branch out into stilt walking and fire eating and uh, all the rest of the variety arts. And, um, and it just became a, a significant part of my life was having these very different communities that I felt were actually very similar to each other. The best scientists have great attention to detail. They have a a strong work ethic. They put a lot of effort into their craft. They're constantly improving. And that's the same of great circus performers and magicians. And the creativity aspects are also very in common. They're used for different purposes, but they, those, so the communities, which for whatever reason, don't tend to interact really should, because there's so much to learn from each other. So, yeah. So, but for years, I, didn't tell my circus friends about my professor life because I was afraid that they would think of me as less of a circus performer. And uh, likewise, my scientific colleagues didn't know about the extent that I was going out and performing at bat mitzvahs on weekends um, or trade shows or, or things. Cause again, the sort of concern that people would think of me as less of a scientist, but over time I just came to embrace both of them and recognize that both sides of me uh, lead me to be both a better scientist and a better magician juggler as well. That's actually remarkable that you were able to keep them so separate. You know, being a professor, especially, I would imagine you were pretty busy. And what a fun skill to have now, you know, if for no other reason, just to be able to have just this other aspect to who you are and this other kind of component that makes you the person that you are, like in totality. And actually, I think both Drew and I have hobbies kind of outside of our science lives that are also not frequently associated, if at all associated with science. Um, I competed at Miss USA actually about a year ago today, and Drew is a CrossFit coach. The work ethic that goes into pursuing a hobby like that, there's so much dedication that, that comes with that. And I think it really kind of boils down to that same, you know, desire for self-improvement and discipline and just, again, to have something else about you when you, you know, when you meet your colleagues, you're not just a biochemist and a computer scientist, as if that's not impressive enough, but you're also a trained magician. That's so awesome. Yeah, and it helps, like, you know, one half of you helps keep the other half fresh. Like, it gives, yeah. you, it gives you kind of an escape to like refresh yourself when you come back to your other piece. It's so important. I think we're, again, we're, we're told over and over and over again, focus, 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 focus. And, and I remember when I was starting at Stanford, I was advised by somebody, they said, oh, you know, you're at Stanford now, you're really going to have to buckle down and, you know, stop doing that magic thing. And I was like, really? Okay. And so I, I did for a couple of years, I really tried to just be a scientist and honestly struggled a lot. But then a couple of years in, I was like, you know, I'm really denying my own identity. And so I 
went back to having hobbies. And um, all of a sudden my science got way better. My lab became more productive. We, you know, published more, got more grants, like everything clicked when I was just being more authentic to myself, which was allowing these other facets of my life to be part of me as a whole person. So I, I really do think that it is important to hone all the aspects of you and to accept that you are a complete person and that all of those pieces make you a better scientist. They make you a better CrossFit coach. They make you, you know, a better pageant competitor. They all feed into the totality of you. And certainly in Nautilus, uh, you know, we actually just last Friday had a juggling happy hour um, where uh, I taught everyone in the company how to juggle and it works different muscles that ultimately help you be the most creative, the most effective. I think that is one of my favorite kind of notes that we've wrapped an episode on. So with that, Dr. Malik, thank you so much for being on the show. I feel so excited about this technology. I want to do more proteomics work now. Thank you so much. We've learned a ton and I love the message that you ended on. I think a lot of people need to hear that, especially in our paths. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really been a, a lot of fun. There were truly so many great parts that interview from guess who to the balance of science and magic. It was, it was awesome. I agree. That's got to be truly one of my favorite endings to an episode because, you know, it's so hard to strike that balance in life and in science particularly because there's always more work to do, right? There's always more to learn. There's always more to discover. And when you're working at the edge of knowledge and there's this sort of abyss in front of you that's yours to discover and yours to venture into, there's sort of this default mindset where where you have to keep going and you have to keep working into that abyss further and further and further and you can't look any other way. So I love that Prague talked about how he believed that maintaining his multifaceted interests actually improved his work as a scientist. And I think that's a message that we definitely didn't receive as we were going through undergrad. And after undergrad and since undergrad, we've received almost the opposite message, either directly or indirectly. So it's nice and kind of very refreshing to hear his perspective and to see how it's benefited, you know, his life and his career and his work. Yeah. And I, I think that I can attest that having something else outside of your main or primary thing that you do really helps keep that, that primary thing fresh and keeps you innovative and energized in that pursuit. Um, and come to think of it, we might've actually gotten bad advice as undergrads with the and is in our DNA campaign. It morphed from a, oh, you can study different things with what you're interested in to do more, do more, do more. I want to do this and this and this and this. And it became more of a rat race than it did of exploration. So, you know, I, I think that we have had some of that go, 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 go push for the better part of what, six years now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really about pouring time and energy into things that actually make you happy and not just doing more for the sake of doing more. So that was a really awesome message that I wasn't expecting to get, but you know, such a surprise in that interview as if, you know, the actual science wasn't interesting enough already, you know, the, this chip that Prague described and, and what he was talking about with these sort of more general probes and kind of using those layered signals to deduce which protein is which and being able to identify and also quantify 
just all those features are so difficult to create, you know, that they're so simple in concept. And that's what I was talking about at the beginning of the interview. The concept behind it is so easy to understand. I mean, you can relate it to a children's game, but it was probably extraordinarily difficult to make this happen. Like the, to create this idea and then to make it come to life is so cool to me. And, you know, not every single scientific discovery that comes out of a lab is worth a company necessarily, but this is really something that as someone who works at the bench and who can really appreciate what you would learn from knowing the protein content of a cell or of a system in a way that's so easy and so specific and so highly sensitive. I mean, it it could really revolutionize the way we study disease. So I'm really, really excited. I'm fired up about this. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to see you fired up about it. Now go out there and, and make your Nautilus. All right. All right. Well, that's a big responsibility to put on me, especially so late in the episode. You haven't even given me time to think about it or talk about it. But I guess on that note, that is all for this week's episode. If you want to keep up with Nautilus, check out their Twitter account at Nautilus Bio. Of course, you can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find science and society. We release a new show on the first Monday of every month. So episode four is coming your way on February 7th. Peace, love, and science.